0: You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. We have loud children, and um, every every once in a while I look at my wife and I'm like, why are they so loud? And then she'll look at me and just say, "You know, you know why, right?" <laughs> yeah. there's, there's not a lot of guessing going on here. Um. All right, let's begin with prayer. We're in Ecclesiastes again today. Two two weeks in Ecclesiastes. Lord, thank you for bringing us together again on this Lord's Day. Thank you that you have met us um, in the table of your hospitality, that you've opened up yourself, your very life to us, and your son. And thank you, Lord, that that has such a massive dimension for reorienting our understanding of ourself, our place in the world, where we're going. Um, And it also has this massive implication for how we orient ourselves to those who are around us. And because we're human and we're frail and we're dust, we need that reorientation again and again. And in the beauty of our weekly celebration together of the, of the preaching of the word and, and the Eucharistic celebrations, Lord, that you get to, you do that for us again and again. And we're grateful. Um, so now as we enter into Ecclesiastes, I pray that we'll do so with a level of humility um, and that you'll open our hearts to understand what you'd have to teach us in this uh, book here, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Um, So what I want to do today is a kind of recap and then rounding out on the book of Ecclesiastes again with a kind of proviso that more likely than not, I'll probably dive into Ecclesiastes again down in the assembly hall uh, once the fall rolls around just because I'm, I'm I'm myself intrigued by the book. Um, The book has lent itself. I think this is part of the fascination for me. I was talking with someone before church about this. The the, the book of Ecclesiastes lends itself because of its heavy reliance on a metaphor um, to multiple understandings. And this is, I think, part of the the fun and the challenge of reading a book like Ecclesiastes is coming to terms with how the history of of the Christian interpretive tradition has tried to wrestle with this. So think, for example, with Jerome. You know, go back to the uh, early 4th century with Jerome. Jerome, and I, I had to correct something on on my what I said last week. Last week I talked about vanity being introduced in the translation, um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, says the preacher. Um, and I made the statement last week that vanity was, as a, as a term, as a translation for that Hebrew word, hevel. And I want that, I, I don't... Um, I do not want that word before you because there's a part of me that wishes we just didn't even translate, tra- translate. just leave it as Hevel. Um, but I, I had mentioned that the, the introduction of vanity as a translation of Hevel, which is, is most familiar to all of us, I imagine, had its source in the King James Version. That's not actually true. It had its source further back, actually, with Jerome uh, in the fourth century and the translations with the Vulgate that introduced this Latin term vanitas. Um, as a translation of, of um, "hevel," and this and this is the challenge with that, because the way in which Jerome understood "hevel" as vanity, as something that's um, uh, an indication of of human self achievement, an indication of human pride and self. And consumption. I think that's what Jerome was thinking about when he translated Hevel as vanity. Everything is vanity, it's just about our own consumption, it's about our own selves, it's about our own achievement. And it led to this sort of contemptio mundi, this contempt for the world, this kind of uh, so that the book of Ecclesiastes becomes an invitation to a, a life of Christian self-denial and asceticism. Yeah, that's that um, the beginning of the monastic movement. So to think about a book like Ecclesiastes and the translation of a word like hevel to be vanity, to be self-congratulatory, um, self-affirming. Uh, laden with consumption and and lasciviousness that that sort of reading um, became a standard reading within the tradition for very for a very long time and it led to this kind of contempt for the world. Um, I actually kind of grew up and some of you maybe have as well I grew up in an ecclesial environment um, that um, had a a kind of contempt for the things of the world. So if you think about various cultural models about the way in which Christians relate to the culture around them, this is a famous book that came out by Niebuhr um, called Christ and Culture, and he gave you these different models, Christ for culture, Christ um, with culture, Christ against culture. Um, I was probably raised in, in a churchly world that was primarily Christ against culture. Um, And Jerome, in his reading of Ecclesiastes, would say, uh, thumbs up. I mean, in other words, this world is passing away. We've read the book of Revelation. We know how things go. Um, So investment in the things of this world, whether it's in the realm of commerce or arts or politics or whatever it might be, investment in these things, um, and this this was actually terminology I remember hearing growing up in sermons, it's like polishing brass on the Titanic, yeah, it's like it's a lesson in it's an exercise of futility. Like if you want to polish the brass, that's fine, but the ice, but we're going down, right? Um, so that was Jerome's reading and it has that particular reading of the term Hevel as vanity has a long and and noble reception in the history of the church. But then along comes Martin Luther, right? 16th century and Martin Luther's reading was actually the, the reverse and very much born out of the spirit of the day, Um, Luther understood vanity in terms of temporal fleeting. Uh, Things can't be, and I'm sympathetic to this reading, and I'm actually going to lean hard into it here in a few minutes. Um, In other words, for Luther, instead of reading Ecclesiastes as an invitation to a contempt for the world, you read Ecclesiastes as a big spotlight on our frailty and the fact that we are all temporal and moving toward death and therefore, if that's the case, then we need to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us in this world while we're here. Um, you'll, you may remember, and I think this is um, actually on a kind of placard in Eisenach, Germany, at the birthplace of Martin Luther. Those who are on that trip may remember this. But um, Luther, I think, was asked one time, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do today? You know, remember his answer? Remember, remember? I'd plant an apple tree. That's what Luther said. In other words, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, but I would still involve myself today in the normal warp and woof of what it means to be a human living life to his glory. I'd plant an apple tree. If I could put it in a Southern colloquialism, we'd plant some tomato plants. Let's all cake this morning, right? And, and this, let's do it, right? Um, so I think moving through the book of ecclesiastes and wrestling with the perspective of Jerome and the perspective of Martin Luther is i think part of the challenge because it's hard it would be hard to let either one of those go that they, they both seem to be fitting in a certain way with the book of ecclesiastes and and struggling with how to understand The book in that way, both with the recognition that the world and the things that we give ourselves to in this world are fleeting and there is a kind of vanity to them. There's a danger inherent in them if we think they're ultimately satisfying. While at the same time, on the other side, seeing in Ecclesiastes is clear on this end of chapter 2, end of chapter 11, we do recognize that life is fleeting and temporary. And because that's the case, enjoy the good gifts that God has given you in this world right now to his glory. Um, so I think what we have with the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've, I'll commend this to you. I, I know this fella, um, but there's a commentary on Ecclesiastes that's come out by Dan Trier. Um, we don't have it. In our, maybe we should get it in our, in our bookstore. And if you're interested, let me know, and I'll, I'll, I'll mention it to them. Um, but Dan Trier, in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, describes the perspective um, of, the, of the author here as um, uh, believing realism. And I think that's helpful. In other words, it's, it's, it's not a kind of nihilistic despondency that basically looks at the world and says, everything's going to hell in a handbasket and just forget it. Um, it's not that. It's not the kind of despondency that one finds in the book, but it is a believing realism. It's a, it's a recognition that as human beings, we cannot, believers in God or not, those who have faith in Jesus Christ or not, we cannot escape the reality of human existence under the sun, recognizing that all is Hevel. And I'll have to say that the more I thought about it this week, um, the more I'm, I'm predisposed myself to lean heavily in, in that sort of metaphoric understanding of Hevel as breath. That, that, and as, if I were to, if my Hebrew students were in a class and I gave them a translation test and I said, there's the word Hevel, give me a translation, the, the, the right answer would be, uh, breath, smoke, vapor. That, that would be the right translation. Um, and then the question is, well, what's the metaphorical point of contact with what the author is trying to do? And I think last week when I taught, I was actually trying to find a sort of sum total category for, to, to that so that every instance of Hevel could be translated in the same way. I'm not as convinced that's necessary anymore, at least th- this week. Maybe I'll change my mind by the fall. Um, But if I was pushed into a corner and someone said, you're going to have to land on one translation of this, I think at least today my answer would be transient, moving, fleeting. Here's another word for you, ungraspable. Uh, uh, We want to think of things in terms of what we can possess and have. And the big three that the author to Ecclesiastes presents to us, and what are the big three? The pursuit of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is a book of wisdom. It's instruction on how to live life well in this world. Whether it's the pursuit of wisdom, whether it's the pursuit of wealth, or whether it is the pursuit of pleasure, all of those are transient. They're all fleeting. And I actually really like the term ungraspable because we all know that whenever you have the moment where whatever it is you're trying to achieve when it comes to wealth or when it comes to knowledge and wisdom or it comes to pleasure, you know that the moment that you experience it is the moment that it begins to slip through your fingers like sand. It cannot be held onto no matter what. And here's the even harder news that we all recognize and we know is true and the fact that it slips through your fingers again and again and cannot be held on to um, also speaks to the character of your existence as a human being. You, too, are, v- are, are vanity. You, too, are hevel. You, too, are vapor, fl- uh, uh, moving, uh, transient, ungraspable, because you're going to blink and then you're going to be gone. I mean, think, think about, I mean, that, that's, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, I mean, so th- I mean, think about this from from the perspective of Solomon. And I do mean I don't I don't think Solomon. I mean, we can talk about this. I don't, I don't think Solomon's the author of the book from beginning to end. But it's meant to come to us kind of from a Solomonic perspective. Think about Solomon, the achievements of that man. Remarkable. Um, we're all adults in here. There was a there was a uh, book that came out several years ago. Um, Called Biblical Womanhood for a Year. Did any of you hear about this? And it was it was a, kind of a sarcastic book. A, a, a woman tried to live under um, Old Testament laws for females for a year. Um, And it was, I mean, it was horrible. So, you know, certain times she slept in the backyard and not in the house. It was was crazy. So as a kind of reaction to that, I was reading a blog somewhere, and a gentleman said, I I told my wife, I'd like to try Solomonic manhood for a year. (laughs) And the wife said, you're not up to it. You know, so... um, you know, so I mean, you, you think about what Solomon achieved, the kind of notoriety that went around the ancient world of his time, drawing foreign visitors like the Queen of Sheba to come all that way just to see what all the fuss was about and to find out it really is true. The accumulation of great wealth. The accumulation of pleasures unknown, singers, seven hundred concubines, three hundred wives. I mean, I mean, it's it's just unbelievable, right? I mean, so he had all of this that was amassed around him, enormous wisdom, and the establishment of the kingdom and the building of the temple that we heard that he that his father wasn't allowed to do. So his dad wasn't allowed to build the temple. He was allowed to build the temple. And for those whose religious worldview was central to what defined their existence as ancient Israel was, the building of the temple was the creme de la creme. I mean, this was the apex of Solomon's achievement and, and what he left to future generations. And, and I was talking with my wife about this. And then Solomon dies. And here's Jeroboam and Rehoboam. They're both clamoring for the throne. They don't get along and then Jeroboam goes to the north. You have, the, you have a, in effect, a civil war that occurs one genera- the next generation after Solomon. And so here you have this perspective of seeing even the accumulation of our wealth. This is vanity. It's fleeting because I give all of my efforts to this, but I don't know what the next generation is going to do. I, I mean, this is not so- the Solomonic temple and building of the kingdom, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a book guy. Um, you know, those are the tools of my trade. And I'm actually a little bit OCD about them, to be honest with you. Um, I've had colleagues who play practical jokes with me every once in a while and come into my office and, and, and pull, sh- pull books out of order because they know that I, can't, I won't be able to sleep until that's fixed. Um, it's, it's, it's a pro- I'm not proud of this, it's a, pro- it's a real problem. And every once in a while, I think about the attention that I give. I mean, it's stupid. I mean, at one point in time, I used to put contact paper on the back of my softback book. I mean, it's just stupid. I don't do that anymore, but, you know, rulers to underline and make marginal notes. and that, I mean, all this kind of stuff. And, it's, and, it's, and, I, and every once in a while, it just sees me, why are you doing this? You know your kids won't give a rat's patootie about your books. They're going to sell them as fast as they can, all right? Um, you know, so, and I, I feel it's, it's, it's fleeting. It's chevel. Um, So you have this kind of believing realism about what life looks like um, under the sun um, and the fact that your life is transitory and moving. And the author to Ecclesiastes here is trying to let you know um, a perspective on existence given those facts that you cannot escape. Last Sunday night, after we did Ecclesiastes in the morning, I got my middle son Jackson, and we hopped in the, the truck, and we drove up to Menton, Alabama, to Alpine Camp. And um, So we had dinner with these kids that were there, and then I spoke to two groups of, of counselors during the evening. And I spoke to them on Ecclesiastes. And um, I, I, I'm still reflecting on this, because there I was sitting. And you will get this, you will get it. Um, and, I'm, and I took video. I mean, I'm sitting in the back. We're in someone's living room up there, and I'm sitting in the bed. Two groups will come in. These, these young counselors, they're all college um, men, right? They're walking in bare feet um, with their guitars and their hats backwards, and they're downing Papa John's pizza like there's no tomorrow. and eating. I mean, I'm just like, this is just great. And then they got together, and they started to sing their lungs out to Jesus. I mean, it, it was. I, I pulled up my phone. Like I'm gonna be a doofus here, but I, pulled, I videoed it. I was like, I gotta send this to my let Naomi see what's going on here. I mean, them singing to their hearts out to the Lord, um, carefree. I mean, it was like. And I, I looked at them and I thought, I remember. I remember. I worked at camp too. And I can remember being in that moment and the, the freeness of it and the joy and being dead dog tired, but knowing it's just the best kind of tired there is. And, and, I, and I look at that and, and, I, and I blink and now I'm here, right? Um, and I'll blink and then I'll be my dad. And I that's, that's just how, and we can't escape that. And it's like the author to Ecclesiastes as an older man is wanting to wrap his arm around younger men. And this is written to younger men, but let's just say younger people. To wrap his arm around them and say, listen to me. Let me give you some perspective on existence given my long journey through this life. But this dawned on me this week. And I'll come back to this again uh, when we go, go to the end of the book. But this dawned on me this week. It's not limited to young people. The book of Ecclesiastes is our canonical older brother that needs to come to us and put its arm around us and give us this counsel at every stage of our existence as adults. From being young people to being middle-aged to being older, the book of Ecclesiastes always has a bigger perspective for you at ev- any stage that you are where you can put your, pla- your, your position, yourself, in that place of reception to say, I'm the young person now that the book of Ecclesiastes is wanting to instruct. Whether you're 20, 50, or 80, the book of Ecclesiastes is wrapping its arm around you and saying, let me give you some perspective on life that you might need to have again even here. So life is moving. And then the final thing, and then I'm not going to take questions because I think Matthew has a hard Stokes has a hard one, so I'm not going to do it. Um, <laughs> you told me that last week, didn't you? Yeah, you got it written down. You're ready to go. I see. Um, <laughs> I also think, um, and again, I wanted to make sure to kind of give you at least some sort of wrap-up of the book. I think Ecclesiastes chapter 12 is meant to be a commentary on the whole of the book. So Ecclesiastes 12 comes to you at the end to give you a kind of perspective and view on the whole. But I want to back up a little bit into chapter 11 and just read some of this to you. It's beautiful. Ecclesiastes is gorgeous. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things God will bring you into judgment. We'll talk about that, right? So this is, this is great. Here you are. You're young. You, this is the persuasion, like, go after it. It's, I mean, if I could get you know, a little saccharine with you, it's, uh, you know, it's Robin Williams saying, seize the day. It's that sort of thing, right? But do remember, I love this. This is, a, this is such a great line. This is such a parenting line, isn't it? Like, I hope you have a great time. But remember, God's watching. And so that's the, <laughs> uh, be holy. I mean, that's, that's the kind of move here. Like, right? God will bring these things into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart and put away pain from your body for your youth and the dawn of life are vanity. So what's what's the counsel that the book of Ecclesiastes, that the preacher is wanting to give you in light of the fact that that everything is hevel? Everything is transient and moving and ungraspable. What's the counsel? Well, counsel number one is rejoice. Rejoice in the good things that God has given you in this moment of your life, even though you know that that too is transient and ungraspable. Even though you know even this moment is not something that I can hold on to and make a possession of my own that I can manage in the way in which I want to manage it. Because when you know you cannot manage any of it. It's ungraspable. It's hevel. So rejoice in the good gifts that God gives you in these moments. Find yourselves in these moments, lifting your eyes and thinking in such a way to to say thank you and to rejoice in the simple good pleasures that God gives you in this world. And that's where I think Martin Luther from his grave would would say, Amen. And Katie, do you have any more beer for me? Right? That was his wife. And she was apparently known as the greatest beer maker in the region, right? So I mean this was embracing of God's good gifts, God's good material gifts in this world. rejoice but here's the second piece of counsel starting in verse 12 and remember your creator in the days of your youth and again if i can go back to the perspective i mentioned a few minutes ago think of ecclesiastes as your older brother wherever you are in your station of life right so in this from the perspective of ecclesiastes a book written before the incarnation of Jesus, we are all young people, right? All of us. Remember your Creator now in the days of your youth. And then is this not such a beautiful description? It's a hard one, but a beautiful description of our existence. Before the evil day comes and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. This is that that reality that we can't escape our bodies as we age. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And the days when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent and the grinders cease because they are few and those who look through the windows are dimmed and the doors on the street are shut. What's what's the imagery here? Again, the fleeting character of life. Things, Things shut down. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song are brought low and they are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way and the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along. But I'll be honest with you, I don't understand all these images, but they're beautiful. Um, the desire fails because man, oh, and this is, and desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets. It's like sort of classic, for, who, for whom does the bell toll? Well, I got bad news, the bell tolls for you. Before, and this is one of my favorite images in Ecclesiastes, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered, at the fountain of the wheel broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it, hevel of hevel, all is hevel, uh, fleeting, ungraspable, it's moving. So what's, what's the call in your existence? To rejoice and to Remember. And what, what does it mean to... What, what is remembering in the Bible? Remembering is this active participation in the thing remembered that shapes the way in which you view yourself and the whole of reality. I mean, remembering as a term and as a charge in the Bible is at the core of the covenantal relationship between God and his people. God, and by the way, this is the only hope of your salvation, God remembers you and he calls on you to remember him. And in the remembering of him, what that means is this active participation in him through faith that shapes the way in which we view everything from ourself internally outward to everything outside of us. Remember your creator and rejoice in the good gifts that God has given you in this world. Remember and rejoice. And listen to these last, uh, last uh, uh, verses. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge and weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with care. The the preacher sought, this is that Kohelet term, sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. They're like fixed nails, firmly uh, fixed, the the collection of sayings. They are given by a shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Because of, I love this, of making many books, there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Um, I'll never forget, I was with one of my New Testament professors, Simon Kistemacher, who's now with the Lord. And I was a young master's student, and I had walked into his office, and he was probably in his early 70s at the time and a uh, Dutch-reformed Dutch New Testament scholar who had come into to the U.S., and so he had a kind of accent, and, and uh, we took to him. I mean, I just thought highly of, of Professor Kistemacher, and I was in his office, and, and, um, and I saw something on his desk. He said, I said, Professor Kistemacher, what's that? And he said, that's uh, my, my commentary on Revelation. And if you go on Amazon or Christian book distributors, you'll see that the William Hendrickson, Simon Kistemacher set of the New Testament commentaries are there, by baker press and and they're still i mean i commend them to anybody and he had just william hendrickson had died Kisselmacher took over the rest of the series and he had just finished revelation done the series was over and um and i still he, he gave me the page proofs I and mean, it was really kind of special but i was i was 22 3. was stupid and um i i said so what are you going to write next <laughs> And uh, he looked at me, I'll never forget this. He looked at me and he said, Mark, let me give you some advice. <laughs> when, when a woman delivers a child, you, you, never, you never ask her in that moment, so when will you have another? Right. <laughs> and uh, he said, so don't ask me about what I'm going to do next. I mean, I'm going to enjoy this child that I just delivered and then we'll think about the other ones later. To the making of books, there is no end. I mean, I, I mean, this is what I you know I do this for a living, and I've had these moments of sort of existential angst, um, you know, spending three years on a doctoral dissertation, and then and then walking through the stacks of the library, knowing that you're just giving all of your time and energy to this book, that you hope will get published, and then when it does get published, and you're walking through the library, you realize here's. Um, stack her shelf upon shelf upon shelf with layer upon layer of bookshelves in there, and mine's going to go right there. And in about thirty years, they're going to have to cull through the library because a book hasn't been checked out in fifteen years. This is what they do. <laughs> I see it. Um, this book hasn't been checked out in fifteen years. Nobody uses it, so we're going to get rid of it. Oh, that was mine. Yeah, there it goes. Right? Of the making of books, there is no end. I mean, there's there's some again. This, this is the preacher looking at his own life, saying, you know. So what's it all about then? Verse 13. So here's the end of it all. Fear God and keep his commandments. Fearing God, we know in the book of Proverbs, is the beginning of wisdom. This is a fascinating move in the book of Ecclesiastes because we've gone on this long journey of life under the sun to end at a place where the fear of God is seen as the sole key to life's existence. But if you'll remember, the book of Proverbs puts the fear of God at the beginning, which tells you something about the way in which you enter into human wisdom through the fear of God and in the humility of recognizing that for all of the achievements of human wisdom notwithstanding, it will never be the wisdom of God. Fear him. And here you come to the end of the book of Ecclesiastes, and it, begin, it ends where Proverbs begins by saying, here's the sum total of your existence. Live life in the reality of your creator and fear him. Um, uh, reverential awe, yes. Knee-knocking fear, yes. And what, what's the point here? Because God's going to bring everything into Judgment. With every secret thing, whether good or evil. The end. And you hear that verse, and I hear that verse, and you think, well, that can't be good news. God's going to bring everything into judgment. And this is where we cannot take the book of Ecclesiastes out of the whole of the Christian Bible, Old and New Testaments. Because the theme of judgment, God's judgment of sin... God's judgment of all the things that we did, good or bad, um, is a theme that, left to ourselves, must be received as repugnant. How, How else could it be received? Because you know some of the secret thoughts of your heart. You don't want God to expose those. I don't want Him to expose mine. I mean, judgment before God who lays open. And we know that God's never impressed with the way in which we construct ourselves socially. God's not impressed with that. So if that's the case and God knows us down to the core of our being, judgment cannot be a hopeful word. But this is what is the beauty of the gospel of our Lord and how it frames how we receive these last verses here in Ecclesiastes. Necessarily so. Judgment as a theme in the Bible is good news for those who are in Christ. Because we recognize that God cannot turn a blind eye to his own justice and holiness. He just cannot do that. And yet, at the same time, God cannot turn a blind eye toward the love and mercy that he has for his people. And He's let and those two, his mercy and his severity, have met together fully in the person and work of Jesus. And judgment is not a theme of repugnancy anymore for us, but it's actually a theme of great good news. Because when we enter into the holy mysteries we just entered into together in worship, we enter into them into the, in the recognition that it's there in the death and resurrection of our Son of, of the Son, where the judgment of God on our behalf is in its fullest display. The judgment of God is actually good news. You'll remember that Martin Luther had that famous dream standing before the Lord and Satan comes in as the accuser He's—I mean, no offense to those of you who are in law but Satan's a lawyer um, um, he comes in um, as, as the accuser into the law courtroom and he begins to roll off the litany of offenses that Luther had done and Luther says in my dream I heard them and every one of them struck me because I knew they were all true he wasn't lying and I lo- he said I looked at the Lord and I said everything that he said is true and then the, Jesus, you know, remember the, Jesus stands up and he takes the, the whole of the list and he, and he absorbs it into himself. That's, that's why the notion of judgment is good news. So where does Ecclesiastes leave us in these last chapters? I think it leaves us necessarily rejoicing, remembering our creator. Getting a perspective on our existence that comes from an active participation in him that shapes the sum total of our existence. A life that's oriented toward the fear of God that leads our lives in in light of his presence and the hope that the judgment that God will bring for our deeds is the judgment that he's already met for us fully um, in Jesus. (laughs) Want to bat this around? Stokes is out. I was just, when you went from Jerome to Martin Luther, I thought you were going to say, in and say yeah. Which to me, that's our problem, that we're not looking to God. We're navel gazing. Yes, yes. And I think that's, that's part of the tension that you feel in the book as it moves forward a kind of movement toward an internal gazing toward an external one. Yeah, that's good. I just, this probably has nothing to do with anything, but I thought. That's it what was. has something to do with something. Franklin, book, on wine. Spirituality of wine. I thought of it twice while you were talking because the abuse of wine has given wine a bad name, and Jesus, everything he said about it is for joy. And I don't know how I thought of that during this. And I'm glad you did because it reminds me that I've got a bottle of Pinot Noir waiting on me at home. <laughs> <laughs> I go home to you people. <laughs> Your take on. Looking at it as a vehicle of forgiveness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of bring to mind two passages. One, the beginning fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. And then in the Psalter, I can't remember exactly where it says it, but it's marked in my prayer book. The wrath of God is the twinkling of time of justice and mercy is in That's I mean, beautiful. We can take, we yeah, can take that out of all of this and bring yes. it back Yes, yes, the yes. Books of yeah, that's beautiful, Coffee. Yes. Anybody else? Nope. This is a non serious but interesting question. Okay. If Solomon had 300 wives, did that take away or add to his wisdom? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it added to his wisdom times 300. That's the. That's the only answer that can be given to such a question. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, the joy that your word brings and the challenges that it brings, Lord, for us to think through what it means to be a human, what it means to live life in its fullness, um, to recognize, Lord, that things are ungraspable and they're transient, and yet, at the same time, they've been given to us, Lord, in your kindness to be enjoyed to their fullest. And that dynamic of our human existence forces us to, well, to what To what can we actually hold ultimately and finally? And the answer that Ecclesiastes leaves us with is you. We have you to hold on to. And we know, Lord, that we are already oriented toward the judgment that you've brought under your Son that gives us the hope. That our experience of the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our lives is not the sum total of our experience of the kingdom. And we look forward to that day. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.